This is Law Bites, a podcast with Michael Geist. Colorado Springs lawyer Zach Crabill was defending a client in a civil case involving a car payment contract last month. Court records reviewed by 13 Investigates reveal Crabill went on ChatGPT to find cases to cite in his legal arguments. But when a judge asked about those cases, the attorney admitted in a court record that nearly every case chat GPT gave him was completely made up. Chat GPT has taken the world by storm in recent months with the potential of generative AI, both positive and negative, top of mind in just about every sector. That's certainly true for the legal profession, where AI tools are becoming increasingly common and courts and regulators are trying to grapple with the implications. Amy Salazin is a colleague at the University of Ottawa who has written extensively in the areas of legal ethics, lawyer regulation, and the use of technology in the delivery of legal services and access to justice. In the coming academic year, she'll be teaching a course on AI in the legal profession, and she joins me on the podcast to talk about the latest in AI technology for law, and the legal, regulatory, and ethical challenges it brings. Amy, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm really glad you've taken the time during the summer to come and join. Uh, as you know, and I think frankly just about everybody knows, ChatGPT has, has taken the world by storm over the last six or seven, eight months maybe with no shortage of concern, interest, and quite a lot of debate about its role seemingly in just about every aspect of society. Obviously, we're going to talk about legal services and the legal profession and, and the role of AI in that regard. Why don't we start uh, with a, a bit of a backgrounder in how AI is being used right now within the legal profession? You know, what are some of the primary AI tools? Sure. Yeah. Great question. I think it's a good question because it helps us remember that even before ChatGPT was kind of released broadly in November of last year, um, we have seen AI tools being used in legal profession. Um, one article characterized their use as modest but increasing. That was about two years ago. And I think you know, that's absolutely accurate. So, you know, some of the longstanding tools lawyers have been using are, for example, predictive coding tools and e-discovery. A lot of the legal research tools have been increasingly using AI techniques to get better results for people. Again, even before ChatGPT, big interest as well in contracts analytics software. So lawyers taking large amounts of contracts and bringing AI to bear on that to find patterns, gaps, risks they may need to know about. And so those tools have existed for a while. Certainly when we saw ChatGPT be kind of released into the world, so to speak, there was massive, massive interest in using generative AI, more particularly tools that are built on large language models to help with legal service delivery. And we saw, you know, very soon after ChatGPT was released, a lot of excitement about ChatGPT answering um, different legal questions quite accurately, um, passing bar exams, um, and big questions about what this is going to mean for the legal profession. And so what we've seen is a lot of experimentation, I would say, in the last few months. Um, lawyers experimenting with ChatGPT itself, doing that for a range of different tasks, anything as kind of simplistic as getting their Christmas cards out faster, maybe helping them put data in a more visually appealing way, 
we also have seen some high profile cases that we'll probably talk about a bit later about lawyers using it for legal research and not necessarily in getting the best results. But that's that's ChatGPT. We're also seeing where the, the money and the real interest is in legal is on specialized tools, building specialized tools for the legal profession. So tools that have domain specific training, tools that maybe have certain guardrails and um, security built in that's gonna make them more appropriate for the legal services context. These tools can do a, a wide variety of things. Some of it's kind of more purely generative where it's generating memos or pleadings. Some of it's maybe what we might call a bit more extractive where this type of technology is being used to look at large sets of documents and extract relevant information. For example, something as simple as having a discovery or deposition transcript and getting the tool to generate a timeline for you or getting a tool to highlight where different topics were discussed. Some of the, the prominent tools that have been out there in the last I guess, six months or so, it's all quite new, but Harvey AI is a tool that maybe some listeners have heard of that was onboarded by a large international law firm, Allen & Overy, and also by the legal team at Price Waterhouse Coopers. And I give that example just to show that there's some pretty big players interested in how they can leverage this technology to improve their legal services delivery. Um, another tool that's being talked about and, and used quite a bit is uh, a tool called Co-Counsel by Case Text, which can do a, a wide variety of things. Um, and the biggest news that, in regards to that tool is that a few weeks ago, it was acquired by Thomson Reuters for um, $650 million. So I use that example to show how much money is um, being invested or, or poured into getting these types of tools to market and getting them more broadly used. We have some main in Canada examples. So DuraSage is a Canadian example that has launched a, a chat with cases feature where it uses this technology to allow lawyers to kind of more naturalistically interact with case law, ask a question of case law, like for example, you know, what were the appellant's arguments in, in this case or something like that. And we're also now seeing um, some of the, the more uh, longstanding traditional legal tech companies come into the field. And so I mentioned Thompson Router's acquisition and investment. Um, Lexis is also um, has a tool, I think in beta still, but is looking at integrating this LM, LM technology into its suite of offerings and getting that to lawyers. Um, so also talk about this technology being integrated into kind of commonplace tools like Word or Excel or Outlook. Um, and the other point being is I think we may you know, be soon hitting a point where this technology is much more ubiquitous than it's been um, before. And so lots of interest, lots of excitement, lots of money being put into it, lots of experimentation. Um, people that are using this technology seem to be quite happy with its results. Um, though I think there's, there's, there's a good and healthy recognition of some of the limitations that we see. I, I was going to ask you, you know, which aspects of legal practice might be most affected by AI. But, you know, that description suggests that there will be few areas that are left untouched. If we're talking about everything from due diligence and litigation support to to research, it sounds as if um, this is this is moving towards being uh, a core technology or at least certainly a, a technology that that pops up in in many aspects of legal practice. Yeah, I think I think you you, you hit the nail on the head there. I think 
one thing to, to I think recognize with this particular type of technology is really what we're seeing is a new capability with respect to interacting with language. Um, a capability that's been building for years, but we haven't really seen this level of sophistication. Uh, and that's been a big barrier for legal AI. If you think about how much language infuses our work, um, I read in a recent New York Times um, article that lawyers are essentially word merchants, but you can think about it. We read words, we read case law, we draft words, we contracts, um, prepare pleadings, um, all different sorts of things, communicate with clients through emails. So if you have a technology that can do things with language and do things well, I think you're absolutely right that it's going to infuse a lot of different aspects of lawyering. Um, and this, you know, you know, that being said, I mean, there's also kind of some headlines about, will this mean the end of lawyers, given, you know, all that this technology might be able to do? Um, some people talk about this technology as replacing tasks, not lawyers. I think that that makes a lot of sense. If you think about all the different skills that lawyers bring to their their, their services and in all sorts of areas, whether it's, um, you know, the, the emotional intelligence, certainly the professional judgment those things aren't being replaced and are going to be even more essential going forward. Um, the, the rosy picture of this is that lawyers will be able to work at the top of their license. It's another phrase you can hear um, bandied about a bit. And what that means is why not use this technology to remove some of the more routine tasks from lawyers, maybe some of the more mundane tasks, and get them to the top of their license where they are using that professional judgment, that critical thinking skills, that emotional intelligence and, and make services more efficient and maybe make jobs for lawyers uh, even better. Um, you know, the example you can give kind of as an analogy to that is thinking about the discovery process and, and litigation. So my background is litigation. Um, you know, years ago when young associates started in litigation, they'd be at a big firm, they'd be maybe put in a room with 200 box, bank of boxes of documents and say, your job for the next two years is to look through those documents. Well, now with more advanced e-discovery tools, we can have computers vastly cut down that task and not require that human manual work and maybe have those associates attend trials or be working on more advanced legal research. And so I think that's that's the promise of this type of technology. Um, and I certainly think there's reason to believe that it, that it is promising in that regard. Okay. So that, that sounds like the best case scenario in terms of yeah. um, a lot of positive uses and, uh, you know, essentially allowing people to do some of the stuff that they were really trained for uh, and leave some of the more mundane stuff essentially to AI or to computing. Uh, you mentioned earlier, though, that there are limitations. And so what what, what do you see as some of the, the, the more negative case that might arise coming out of this? Sure. So, you know, what we've seen with this type of technology is there are depending on what kind of tasks you want tasks you want to do there are some pretty big concerns about reliability and trustworthiness and so one thing to know about this technology like i said before it's a large language model and i'm not going to get into the technical aspects of it but one very simplistic way to explain what this technology is doing is it's basically generating language using statistical probability so it's consumed a lot of different types of text many 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 um, um, large amounts of text from all over the internet, and it predicts what words seemingly will go together well. Again, that's a simplistic type of um, description of what the technology does. But what that means is that certainly the raw LLM models are not looking up an answer for you in a database and getting that answer to you um, as the correct answer tied to some source of information. It's just predicting what words sound good together. And we saw 
uh, maybe it was maybe two months ago, um, a very high profile case of a lawyer using this technology to try and do legal research and um, for the reasons I just described, getting into a lot of trouble. This lawyer had a legal case involving um, a consumer dispute with airlines and was using ChatGPT um, and asked ChatGPT, can you tell me some cases that case law that might be helpful for my case? The lawyer was very happy that the tool generated some seemingly very relevant cases that would be helpful for his client without seeing if those cases um, were found in other types of legal databases or on court websites, simply gave those cases to the court. Turned out those cases were completely fabricated. Um, some people use the word hallucination when they talk about this kind of technology giving this wrong result. Um, the other side in the case ended up uh, identifying this as a fake case and the lawyer was sanctioned and, and also you know, certainly was uh, shown about on the internet as an example of all the things that can go wrong with this technology. Um, some of those bespoke tools that I was talking about have really worked on cutting down that hallucination problem. They do that through a variety of techniques. They um, connect the tool to known true sources of information. So a legal database. So I'll ask the tool to kind of look for the answers there. Um, there's a question about where the ceiling is, I think, for reliability here, um, and whether or not you can kind of get to 100% reliability. And so that's a big question when you're talking about certain uses of the tools. But again, it depends on what you're using the tool for. Um, are using it to help brainstorm questions for uh, deposition or discovery. The same types of reliability issues may not be as pertinent there. Are you using it to generate a first draft that you'll then check and check all the citations in it? Maybe those concerns are limited there. And so I don't think it's a black and white story. Um, one interesting conversation about the use of this type of technology in legal is about de-skilling. Um, and so what happens when you have young associates and theoretically you have this tool in your law firm that's doing first drafts of things or creating legal research memos and you don't have the associate going through the process of writing themselves the first draft, going through that thinking process, going through that judgment process. Are we going to lose something in training? Um, are we going to lose um, the need for associate level positions in law firms? That's another topic of conversation. And I think you know, certainly for the law students I teach, a big area of concern. Um, and so, you know, I think there are a lot of nuances to the, the story of a beneficial use. And I think we're just at the beginning of the, the story about where we're going to end up with this type of technology. Okay, interesting. So, so some clear, at least limitations today, although I think it's pretty instructive that you highlight that we're already seeing developments that address some of those. What about yeah. the ethical the ethical side of it? So a lot of people say, well, we understand that, that the tech can be used or has, has positive benefits, has also some potential negatives, uh, but express a lot of concern about more broadly about the ethics of using AI in this way. Uh, where do you land on this or how do you see some of this unfolding? You know, we talk about ethics, you can look at it um, in a broad sense or kind of in a more narrow sense of legal ethics. When we talk about ethics more broadly, you know, there's a huge important conversation about AI ethics, of course, which you're well aware of, and I'm sure your listeners are as well. With this type of technology, there's, there's big ethical concerns about, you know, privacy, about data security. We see obviously some regulators investigating that as well, um, about deceptive practices, there's also conversations about the environmental impact of this type of technology. It does take a lot of um, energy to run some of these tools. Increasingly, there's exposés on labor practices. And so 
you know, one thing to keep in mind is we think about AI and these tools, we often think about, you know, a machine doing this type of work um, and thinking maybe about it in terms of bits and bytes and hardware. Well, for a lot of this AI technology to work, there is a lot of, you know, labor that is needed to classify, code, train the tools. And a lot of that labor work is offshore and not necessarily um, done in the best working conditions. And some journalists are doing some great work on that. So there's kind of this big swirl of, I think, broader ethical considerations that we always need to keep in mind. Um, talking maybe more about legal ethics um, as, a, as a narrower set of ethical concerns, there's, there, there's the issue that lawyers have a duty of tech competence. And what does that mean in this area? Well, it means you certainly need to understand the limitations of these sorts of tools, what they are doing kind of at a basic conceptual level and not get into that situation that the American lawyer did and relying on cases produced by ChatGPT without verifying, without checking. Um, I think another interesting question is when we might get to a point where the failure to use these sorts of tools might be incompetence. We've gone to that tipping point before in the legal profession. An example is with legal research. So, you know, not that long ago, lawyers used print journals, print texts to do all their legal research. Well, now it would be considered incompetence if lawyers weren't using electronic databases to do their research faster to get more complete results. And so that type of technology lawyers need to be using. Are we going to hit that tipping point with this sort of technology? Um, I always like to emphasize too that a lot of lawyers don't appreciate it, but there's actually an ethical duty to be efficient, um, which maybe is a bit um, in tension with the billable hours model. But in our ethical code, uh, there is discussion about lawyers needing to provide efficient legal services to the to their clients. And so a question becomes, again, when a tool becomes reliable enough, becomes available enough, are lawyers going to need to use that as part of their obligation to provide efficient legal services? Um, due diligence, I think, is going to be a key point going forward. Um, as this technology gets cheaper to um, at produce and produce tools um, using the technology, um, we may see kind of a wide range in quality. Lawyers need to know what they're using and need to know that the buck stops with them, with their outputs to their clients, and um, they need to make sure they're using technolo technological tools that are reliable. Um, kind of maybe a bit to the side, but another area I'm getting quite interested in in relation to generative AI is issue of deep fakes. So, so far we've been talking about generative AI that produces language. What about these, these tools that are getting increasingly sophisticated that can um, generate images, audio, video? Um, what happens when we have bad actors start introducing evidence um, into courtrooms using uh, these sorts of tools? We've seen some deep fake evidence pop up in other jurisdictions already. It's certainly not something we're seeing widespread, but again, if you kind of look at some of the tools being released to the public and the ease of use, it might start becoming a much bigger problem. And I think lawyers are going to need to have this on their radar and we're going to need to have um, guidance for lawyers about how they're going to handle these sorts of situations. Um, so I think there's a lot on the horizon um, on the legal ethics front. Um, and I think we're going to have a lot of interesting questions to grapple with uh, in the near future. Okay, that, that was that was comprehensive. And you're right. I mean, it's highlighted pretty wide range of issues. Now, I suppose unsurprisingly, we're starting to see uh, law societies and even courts sort of begin to grapple with some of these issues. In fact, there have mm -hmm. been a couple of practice directions on the use of AI. Can you describe a bit uh, what we've started to see and, and what some of your thoughts on them are? One of the biggest stories in legal, and you probably 
um, have, have caught on to that by now because I've mentioned it a few times, is this American lawyer that used ChatGPT and submitted fake cases to the court. And there was a, a large amount of concern and alarm when people saw this happening. Um, and so what we've seen is um, some individual judges in the United States react with some practice directions. Um, but in Canada, we've seen, um, at least as, as far as I know, two uh, trial level courts issue practice directions. And essentially what the practice directions say is that when artificial intelligence is used in the preparation of materials filed with the court, uh, the materials must indicate how artificial intelligence was used. So essentially a disclosure obligation. What are your thoughts of that approach? I think at the starting point, I think it's wonderful that courts have this on their radar. They're thinking about AI, they're thinking about how it's going to impact their work and the work of lawyers before them. I think I share kind of what seems to be the, the common reaction to these practice directions that um, that's um, coming up in Canada is that, again, wonderful, you're trying to do something proactive, but this isn't necessarily the best or most ideal approach. Um, one thing that, that many people have pointed out, and I would absolutely agree with, is the practice direction, you know, is quite vague. It references artificial intelligence. Well, of course, that's a term of art that can mean all sorts of things that lawyers are already using, even if they don't know it, whether it's, you know, grammar correcting software, whether or not it's some of those legal research tools that are using natural language processing. Someone gave an example of using Google to look up a court address. So quite broad, and you know, it's not a matter of kind of being silly about a definition. I think even on the face of commonly accepted definitions, there are a lot of things that are captured under that umbrella of artificial intelligence. And then also, also vague in, in what the lawyer has to disclose. Um, the practice directions talk about materials needing to indicate how artificial intelligence was used. Does that mean they have to just name the tool they use? So they have to explain how the tool was operating? Um, that can get quite difficult for some lawyers. Um, so those are some kind of practical concerns. I, I also just have fundamental questions about what this practice direction is trying to get at it and if it's doing it, it in the best way. Um, it does seem like it's in reaction to the, the these fake cases or this one or two instances of fake cases coming before the court. If that's a concern, I would say lawyers already have obligations to be competent. They have obligations not to deceive the court. I'm not sure we need an extra practice direction. On the, on the court side, I mean, I do think they have their own obligations of due diligence. Regardless if someone discloses or using artificial intelligence, if they're going to integrate a case citation into their judgment, I would expect that they're checking to make sure that case is real and that case says what the lawyer says it's going to say. And so I have kind of some questions about the necessity here. Um, you know, if, if the court is interested more broadly in, you know, who is writing these submissions that are coming before the court or what is writing these submissions that are before the court, I, I do have questions as to why, you know, that is really the court's business, so to speak. Um, if a litigator uses an AI tool to help them come up with a good topic sentence in a factum or again, maybe um, produce a graph they're going to use um, in their pleadings. Um, I'm not sure that that's something that uh, really needs to be um, disclosed to the court and is really, you know, within the court's um, interest to be learning about. Um, and so, you know, I applaud the interest and the effort. I'm not sure this is the best approach. Um, if the court, you know, does have a high degree of alarm about the potential for fake cases, why not do a notice to the profession um, just saying these tools are out here, they've cost some people in the problem in the past. 
lawyers beware of the risks and you know, maybe even letting lawyers know that ignorance is no excuse here. Um, I think that would cover off the issue much better and not necessarily get into all these problems that I'm talking about because, you know, lawyers are people who want to comply with the law and it's going to be very difficult for them to understand what exactly this direction is trying to get them to do. So I think it just creates more confusion than help ultimately. Okay. So that that's the take on, on the court's foray into this. Our Law, law societies, bar associations, are are they getting involved? Are we seeing more of a regulatory approach or is it at this stage largely discussion? And even if we do move there, you know, what, what do you foresee as, as either beneficial or, or likely to emerge? Is it similar kinds of practice directions? Is it actual regulation or other kinds of guidelines? Uh, or do you think perhaps that we ought to be holding off as this technology is moving incredibly quickly and it still feels certainly like early days in terms of the more broad use of, of some of these kinds of technologies? Yeah, I mean, I think think we have. I think it's absolutely true. We haven't. This technology hasn't settled as to where it's going to be ultimately in the legal profession. It's still a very much fast moving story, both you know in terms of exploring use cases, but also the technical capacities changing and growing, and you know providers um, changing and growing and what they're making available. Um, and so, I think any approach has to be extremely nimble, and that can be difficult to do through regulations. Um, I would say, in large part, we have the tools that we need as lawyers and law societies to deal with this technology. Um, it's just a matter of understanding how some of those existing obligations, whether or not it's competence, due diligence, efficiency, um, haven't talked too much about confidentiality, but that's going to be a concern using this technology as well. How do those principles, those longstanding principles apply in this particular situation? And so I think that's where law sites can do some great work in providing best practices providing elaborations of, of some of these risks. I think that could go a long way in helping lawyers. Those best practices can, can evolve as you know what we're seeing out in the world evolve. Um, continuing to do lots of CPD and giving those opportunities to lawyers to learn some of the core concepts. Um, I haven't seen too much in terms of law societies or bar regulations coming out with that kind of best practice or explanatory material. Um, one group that's doing some interesting work is there's an MIT task force on responsible use of generative AI for law. And they're kind of doing this type of work, thinking about some of those core principles that apply to lawyers and explicating, you know, how do they apply in this particular scenario using these types of tools? And I think they're doing great work. They're kind of going through an iterative process where they're you know, publishing different drafts and asking for feedback. And so I think that could provide law societies with a great model to start. Um, I do know law societies are thinking about this a lot. Um, and I so, so I think it's it's great it's on their radar. And I think, you know, not jumping too fast to try and treat this technology in some sort of black and white way is appropriate. Um, but I think saying nothing, on the other hand, is inappropriate. And, and lawyers are going to increasingly need guidance on, you know, what they should be doing, what are some of the risks and benefits they should be thinking about. Yeah, no, that's that's a that's a nice way way to put it. What you know, why don't we we conclude with this? Uh Let's say it's 2030, not that far away, but uh, far enough that certainly we can see some evolution in some of the technology and what one would think would be increasing change and adoption. You know, what, what would be your take on on the role of AI within the, the legal profession in, in you know six, seven years kind of time frame? How extensive do you think will be the regulatory response? You know, will will some of those discussions that you just highlighted ultimately lead to to increasing regulation as as the profession starts adopting, but then also seeking out some sort of guardrails or guidelines on where to go? 
you know, we might even say, let's say it's 2025. I think, you know, there's there's lots of discussion and interest in just how fast this technology is moving and how fast it might disrupt the legal profession. Some people predict that we're going to see kind of a drastically transformed legal profession, you know, even before 20. 2030 uh, in a much shorter time frame. Um, my approach so far has been to uh, embrace a lot of humility and, and reticence to kind of make any type of strong predictions. I think we don't know yet where this technology is going to take us, um, but I think there's reasons to think that it will have a significant impact. Again, just because of that facility with language that we haven't seen before. Um, where I'd like to see this technology is helping out, you know, for access to justice. You know, is there a way we can leverage this type of technology to make legal services or make people's legal needs much easier to meet for those people that don't have lawyers or, or make it easier for lawyers to um, help more people? Um, the story on that still isn't written, um, but I think there's lots of promise there. And I, I really hope that that's where this technology can be directed. Because um, it's one thing for <clears throat> large law firms and corporations to integrate this to help, you know, improve their bottom line. But as you know, as, as, as your listeners know, we have a huge access to justice issue um, in Canada and, and throughout the world. So if we do have this, this great capacity, you know, how can we harness it to help people who aren't currently getting help? I think that's one of the most interesting and important questions going forward. But I think that's a that's a great way to to leave this. Thinking about this not just uh, from a big firm perspective or from a fr from the lawyer's perspective, but more broadly how how this can be beneficial to society and and access to justice, of course, would be a critical component of that. Uh, Amy, I know they'll be teaching a course on this uh, in the coming year. Students, I think, are going to have a blast uh, getting to think through some of these issues. And... I think so. I hope so. Yeah. Absolutely. And so, so much to uh, say, who knows what we'll be I'm teaching the course in February. So there'll probably be new conversations to be had, too. It's a very exciting time. That'd be great. Well, who knows? Maybe, you come, maybe you'll come on once again as we start seeing this <laughs> evolve. But uh, thank you for taking the time to come on and talk about where things where things are and uh, where we may be headed when it comes to AI with respect to the legal profession. Thanks so much for having me. That's the Law Bites podcast for this week. If you have comments, suggestions, or other feedback, write to lawbites at pobox.com. Follow the podcast on Twitter at lawbitespod or Michael Geist at mgeist. You can download the latest episodes from my website at michaelgeist.ca or subscribe via RSS at Apple Podcast, Google, or Spotify. The Law Bites podcast is produced by Gerardo LeBron LeBoy. Music by the LeBoy Brothers, Gerardo and Jose LeBron LeBoy. Credit information for the clips featured in this podcast can be found in the show notes for this episode at michaelgeist.ca. I'm Michael Geist. Thanks for listening, and see you next time.